As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim Wyatt. Today we're going to delve into a complex and sensitive topic, infertility and IVF. The statistics suggest about one in seven couples will be unable to conceive without some kind of medical intervention. And the most popular form of reproductive treatment is in vitro fertilization, better known as IVF. Partly because infertility is such a painful time for many of those experiencing it, we don't talk about it very much. The same actually is also true of IVF, even though in some places the procedure now accounts for as many as 5% of all births. In this episode, we wanted to consider how infertility interacts with both church culture and broader society, for good or for ill, and then examine the complicated ethical questions that are raised by IVF treatment. Thanks for joining us again uh, for another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, today's topic is, is infertility and reproductive technologies, and in particular, uh, one of the most common ways uh, that infertility is treated um, at the moment, which is in vitro fertilization, more commonly known as IVF. Um, I know this is something that you've written about f- for quite a while. Why, why has this been such a kind of big theme of your work? Yeah, hi Tim, it's good to to talk about this topic because infertility is one of those topics I seem to have run into repeatedly over the years and in fact I've had over the years I've had any innumerable painful conversations with people, many Christian people in particular, in couples who've been desperate to have a child and have found that it have not been able to have a child just by natural means and and so I've always been aware of quite how common infertility is and how many Christian people really struggle with this but what's striking is that it's very rarely spoken about in in public and um, it's it's like one of those hidden wounds in in so many people's lives Um, so in fact the statistics suggest that about one in seven of all couples um, have some form of infertility and will not be able to have babies without specialist medical help and and so it's surprisingly common and it, it always has been I mean it's quite interesting isn't it if you look back in the Bible in the Old Testament how often infertility features as part of the of the plot line mm. and I guess it's as you say if it's one in seven then it's a statistical guarantee that There'll be people listening to this podcast now who have experienced this in the past or maybe are experiencing infertility at present. And we're both very aware that this is, as you say, an incredibly sensitive topic and be quite upsetting and quite painful for people. So we want to approach this sensitively and with caution and care. Um, um, 
because as you say it, it's something which people don't know how to talk about partly because they're aware of how painful it is but maybe sometimes that can actually contribute to people's feelings of kind of isolation and and um and kind of being feel like they're, they're on this journey alone yes i think so and and what i've realized talking to many couples with infertility is how incredibly insensitive often people are including i'm sorry to say so often insensitive the local church is I mean, if you think about it, it's it's very common for local churches to be very focused on young families. You know, everybody's celebrating when there's a new baby and we have special family services and we've got the creche there. And and um, the, the whole emphasis on 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 having children and and yet sitting there in the church are often a whole number of couples who would would long to have a child and yet um haven't been able to and and it seems like people just forget about them or, or just not aware of the of the the level of pain that that infertility can cause yeah i think i think things are from my experience starting to change i think for most of the last kind of 10 years or so when i've been in church services for mother's day there's been a kind of an awareness from the front sometimes explicitly stated that you know mother's day can be a really painful day for people who who have lost their mothers or who are bereaved or who have not been able to have children for other reasons and um i'm i'm aware of some other kind of churches in our area here who are um offering courses um uh, for for people to kind of come or retreat days who are experiencing infertility so i think there's certainly an increased awareness um of of this as a of an issue that affects a, a, a really large number of christians um is infertility increasing is that just my perception or is infertility actually increasing so society-wide well from a medical point of view that there isn't really any evidence of a sort of massive change overall in the level of fertility but what is happening is that as mothers are trying to have children at or women are trying to have children at at older and older ages, uh, they become aware of the fact that they're infertile. So, so the statistics show that actually, biologically speaking, the the best time for having a child is it is it when the mother is in the early twenties, and even from twenty five onwards, um, there is a, a slow reduction as every year goes by in in the levels of fertility, and by the time you get to thirty five and beyond. Um, fertility levels in the mother uh, drop very significantly and yet we've got this paradox that at the same time the age at which the mother uh, the first child at which mothers are having their first child is steadily increasing and um, overall it's it's between 28 and 29 I think and, and certainly in some uh, segments of the community uh, age at first child would be well into the 30s it seems as like it seems to me there's almost a real tension, an unfortunate tension between, as um, you know, society has um, increased opportunities, you know, civic and legal equalities for women, um, given them more more space to to move out of the kind of sphere of the home and into the workplace and in society, um, which women have taken up in huge numbers, as we know, um, increased freedoms to to pursue their own careers and, and that kind of thing. It's actually ended up having a, an increased pressure on on making families, as you say, because women feel a need to to build careers and to 
pursue their dreams and fear that taking time out at their most fertile years in their 20s they're either just not ready for kids or that would have a real detrimental impact on on their future aspirations And so this does create an enormous sense of pressure and, and often people have said to me, you know, they feel the biological clock is ticking, you know, they need to get on. Um, but I, as a result, I think often people have delayed starting a family for a long time and then by the time couples decide now is the time, now is the time to try to, to have a baby, all of a sudden they discover actually we're infertile. And then the question is, well now... You know, should I go for this highly technological option, which which could also be extremely expensive, of in vitro fertilization? And and how do I think about that? What do I think about the ethics of it? What do I think about this as a as an option for Christians? And and so I suppose that's the reason why um, I have been approached on on a whole number of occasions by couples who are keen to talk through what the what the ethical issues are. Shall we briefly try and explain to people who are not familiar what IVF is and, and how it works? It's often summed up with the phrase test tube babies. That's a little simplistic, isn't it, of what actually is going on? Yeah, I often say that when I went to a medical school, which was a very long time ago, before you were even <laughs> thought of, and it was actually in the 1970s, would you believe, I remember we had a single lecture on human reproduction. And so I went along and took my notebook and it turned out that human reproduction depended on a man and a woman having intercourse. And, um, and nine months later, out came a baby. And I wrote it all down carefully in my notebook, but I'd already worked out most of that. But um, now if you go to a lecture on human reproduction, it's utterly different. And in particular, it's, it's become much more mechanised in the sense, what, it, how do you create a baby? Answer, you need a source of sperm. You need a source of eggs. You need a womb, somebody who's going to provide um, a womb for the baby. And then you need someone who's going to look after the baby after they're, they're born. And so, as is often said, um, there, are th- there are three different mothers. There's the genetic mother who provides an egg. There's a carrying mother who provides the womb. And there's a caring mother who looks after the baby after the baby's born. Although, of course, you don't actually need a mother these days. So... Um, the effect of IVF has been to completely dissolve and, and pull apart the different elements that go into making a baby. Hmm. And so, if if you're if you were, let's imagine one of these Christian couples um, decide they do want to go for IVF, what does that process look like? What do they have to do? How long might it take? What are the costs involved? Yes. Well, um, what you to do is you have to go and be, be assessed i mean what part of the problem uh, as from my point of view is that there is actually enormous encouragement for people to go into ivf rather than to try to maximize their natural fertility um and and the reason for this is it is that f- for many fertility specialists ivf just seems like an ideal solution and why would you spend a lot of time and energy trying to promote natural childbirth when we've got this technological solution? 
But also, I have to say, part of the reason <coughs> why um, IVF is promoted is it is extraordinarily commercially um, beneficial for the people involved. IVF doctors are some of the highly, most highly paid medical specialists in the world, including in the UK. I mean, it's not uncommon for fertility specialists to be earning literally millions of pounds a year from wow. their IVF work. Is that and all from so, private work or is that even it, true for people working in the NHS as well? No, it's private work. So in the NHS, um, it was laid down in the foundation of the NHS. It was um, very, very unusual is that every consultant in the NHS is on exactly the same pay scale. Whether you are a psycho geriatrician who is regarded as the lowest end of the low versus being a sort of neurosurgeon or a cardiologist or whatever, uh, interestingly, the NHS pay scales are absolutely the same. And that is a pretty much unique, I think, in, in terms of health services or very unusual health services around the world. So the fertility specialists get paid the same by the um, NHS. But in fact, the vast majority of IVF is done privately. Although the NHS pays for a, a few cycles, um, a large amount of it is done privately. Hmm. And so if if a couple of, of donated... Uh, I guess the most common way would be, I think I understand, is, if I'm wrong, is, is for the sperm and the egg to come to both come from the couple themselves. Um, yes. Now, obviously, there's a big difference in donating sperm and donating egg. The donating sperm is is very straightforward, effectively, and the husband is just asked to provide one or more samples of sperm. But the creating an egg, uh, um, getting an egg... Um, extracting an egg or they use this phrase harvesting eggs is um is is a much more complex process because the egg is created inside the mother's body in the ovary and normally just passes down the fallopian tube and um and is then lost in the monthly menstrual cycle if a, if a baby isn't formed so what was developed was a very artificial process and, and that giving the mother hormones which s stimulate the ovum, the ovary to produce multiple eggs instead of just a single egg, which is what normally happens at a natural cycle. And so the, the mother is given a series of, of hormone injections which cause the eggs to produce, which cause the ovary to produce as many as 15, 20, 25, 30 eggs. Very, very abnormal. And then these are harvested uh, by a, a procedure called laparoscopy, which is done under local anaesthetic, but is again quite invasive and unpleasant. And these are sucked out from the ovary and and then stored. And so then what happens is that the egg, you decide how many eggs to fertilise. But for instance, if you selected, if you've extracted 25 eggs, you could fertilise all, all of them. You mix them with the sperm. Uh, and, and, and in a in a glass dish, and um, and then you allow the embryos uh, to to form and to start growing. And then what happens is you have to decide which embryos you're going to reimplant and when you're going to do it. And again, different techniques, slightly done differently. But basically, the embryos are all examined under the microscope, and two, one or two, are selected and are reinserted back into the mother's womb. What kind of age is that point since they were fertilised? It's normally done at 
around three or four days. Uh, it does vary slightly, and, and depending on whether you're going to do tests on the embryos. So in some centres, what they do is they test the embryos by doing genetic tests. And what you have to do then, you know, an embryo starts as a single cell and then divides to two, and then it goes to three, four, five, six, as, as the cells divide. And if you're going to do what's called pre-implantation genetic testing, you've got to wait for the embryo to do, to get to a stage where you can literally then suck it. So if, if it's, say, at the eight-cell stage, you can take away one of those cells and suck it out of the embryo and then test it, and the embryo continues to grow amazingly. You know, even though it's lost one out of eight cells, it continues to grow and develop completely normally. So then you can t take that cell and subject it to genetic testing. And then that will t then you can select of all the embryos you've got growing, which ones you want to put back. Does that mean you could select by, because that cell DNA would tell you if this was a boy or a girl and various other things about their potential, how, what kind of child they would grow up to be. Does that mean that parents can doing IVF can select for different characteristics of their future children? Yes, well, the UK is very unusual, again, in that the whole process of IVF is very, very heavily and tightly controlled. There's a government organisation, <clears throat> the HFEA, Human Fertilisation Embryology Authority, and it was set up to oversee and regulate uh, exactly what is done in laboratories. And, and there are very, very stringent controls and criminal sanctions if if an embryologist was to do something which was found to be illegal they could with an embryo they could have effectively be sent to prison in many other countries across the world including the usa it's it there's virtually no controls at all uh, of what is being done in private laboratories so in the uk you can only select do sex selection on an embryo for a medical reason so <clears throat> if if there was a medical condition, a genetic condition running in the family, which only affected males, but the females were, were not affected, they were just carriers, then what you could do is you could choose to only insert female embryos in that case. Hmm. And similarly, if, if they knew one particular genetic anomaly, they could test the embryos for that genetic anomaly and, and not put back embryos that were affected by those conditions. But you, but you can't wouldn't choose be allowed to height or to have dark exactly. hair or something like that. <clears throat> or what's called social sex selection. You couldn't say, you know, I just want a girl. Uh, that That's currently in the UK not allowed. But it, it is allowed in other countries and it is happening in other countries. Hmm. And unfortunately, it almost always works out where people want to choose a boy rather than a girl. Sadly, that's the case. Well, certainly in many um, Asian countries, there's a a very significant excess of boy babies being born compared to girls and mm. although technically sex selection is not allowed in practice it is clearly going on and so let's imagine we've re-implanted to, we've picked the two best embryos by whatever criteria and we've re-implanted those back in. Is the, is the point of choosing two simply just to increase the odds that in case one doesn't stick 
as it were, you still you still fall pregnant. That's right. Yes, and um, in the bad old days, they used to uh, implant four, five, six or more embryos in in older women. And I still remember when I was a junior doctor, I looked after they were they were the world's first test tube quintuplets, um, and and they were. At a private IVF clinic uh, in London, uh, the fertility doctor had inserted six embryos, and five of them had taken. And um, and of course, the NHS then had to care provide the care for. We had five extremely premature babies. They were born at twenty six weeks gestation. Five of them, and we had in the operating theatre we had five separate teams all working on each baby. And um, and amazingly, all five survived, but it but it caused an immense pressure on our neonatal unit for months. Yeah. And maybe is there additional risk to the mother as well for carrying quintuplets? There, there certainly is. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, after those kind of terrible situations um, in the UK, they initially re- said you weren't allowed to put more than three, and now it's uh, it turns out that the majority of, em- of cases now they're only putting one embryo back which which is great because many of the babies we cared for who were born prematurely were in fact uh, born as a result of reproductive technology so is that simply because we've got better at making sure that um, embryos who were reinserted do um, kind of carry to term yeah so so if you take the the youngest healthiest embryos with, I mean, with, with with the mother who has the youngest eggs, because it's the age of the egg which seems to be critical. Um, the rates of success are about thirty to thirty-five percent. So they're still not anywhere near a hundred percent. But one in three of the embryos that are inserted will survive uh, to term. Whereas if um, if you uh, take women with whose eggs are more than forty. Um, then the chances of survival per embryo is, is about 5%, so very low. And then, you know, this causes a terrible issue for elderly couples because, you know, it could easily be £10,000 plus for one cycle of IVF. It could m- maybe more, 20000 I mean. And just imagine you're 40, you know, you're absolutely desperate to have a child, you know, Am I? And we've had five cycles, and it's already cost us a hundred thousand pounds. You know, we've sold the house, we've taken out a massive debts. You know, and and should I go? Should, is it worth another twenty thousand um, pounds? So you can see the sort of terrible pressures. But I have heard it said that the very existence of this technology, in a way, stops people from grieving the tragic situation they're in right you know some uh, people have said to me if i knew there was nothing that could be done i would just say well it's not god's plan for us to have a baby so we'll just accept it but because i know that there's this clinic and saying there's a five percent chance Hmm. i can't sort of accept i can't just accept my situation Hmm. and we're going to come on to talk about um egg donation which is a way of trying to i guess resolve that issue with the age of the eggs but just before we do that what we mentioned at the start that you know you would 
produce kind of super ovulation so you might have 25 or 30 eggs you've re-implanted one or two what happens to the other 28 left behind that's right the so-called problem of surplus embryos and you've basically got three options you can freeze them it turns out that you can freeze embryos in deep freeze in liquid nitrogen for um for years decades and so far uh, cases of where the embryos are, are rethawed uh, they have um healthy children have resulted um and at the moment there are tens of thousands of frozen embryos sitting in liquid nitrogen across the country um but of course that raises again all kinds of issues and particularly what happens if for instance the couple divorce or separate or some other tragedy happens one of them dies what do you do with all the with all the frozen embryos so you have two other possibilities one is you can do destructive medical research so you basically use these embryos in order to obtain stem cells you know, effectively you you analyze them you pull them apart you take cells from them and eventually you destroy them or the third option is that you simply discard them you you flush them away is there an option to donate them to other couples there is sorry you're absolutely right that's that's a, a fourth option the option is that you can uh, donate to couples who um, are not able to create an embryo of their own uh, so that's so-called embryo donation sometimes called embryo adoption and i suppose that ties in what we we're talking about before because as you say if a key determiner in the success of, of an ivf cycle is is the age of the the woman when she donates the eggs and if you're coming to ivf let's say aged 40 um and maybe a few cycles of your own eggs don't work the option for some couples might be to consider okay we can't we can no longer conceive a child who was 100% genetically ours but we could maybe um use embryos from a 22 year old woman who had done ivf much much earlier in her life um and donated them and that might increase our odds of, of successful birth which isn't obviously quite the same as because they're not genetically yours but at least you would be carrying a child to term that's right and and at one level this seems like an obvious solution you know we go through the mother goes through pregnancy she delivers the baby we care for the baby you know we're a family at last um but it's not that simple because genetically this baby who appears to be <clears throat> you know our, our family is actually unrelated to us so guidelines from psychologists and counselors and so on is that in this case children should be told right from the beginning that they are not genetically um, related you know that there's someone else somewhere else there is a father and mother um, who donated the embryo but in reality all the evidence is <clears throat> that in most cases parents conceal this completely they try to get a genetic match so that the child has the right kind of hair color and so on and and so the child appears as though they're it's their own natural biological child and they don't tell anybody 
that this is child is genetically unrelated but then there are cases where ch as children grow up this sort of guilty secret sometimes comes out or else they increasingly suspect it and then they go on a hunt to find their genetic parents so and and there's a I was very struck by a book I read some years ago whose title is Who Am I? And it was just a whole series of adults who had been born by reproductive technology and who were genetically different from their, the, the people who brought them up. And the overwhelming sense that came out was this, this sense of, you know, who am I? Of, I, I I'm, who, my genetic, my identity is deeply confused by the reproductive technology. And interestingly, several of them said, you know, I'm very grateful for my life. I, I'm really grateful that I'm alive and, and, and existing. But actually, when my adoptive parents or, you know, the people who created me by reproductive technology, they weren't thinking about me. They weren't thinking about how I might feel and how my identity might be. They were just thinking about their own desperate desire to have a child. I've even heard of um, stories online where... Um people have only discovered that they are not genetically related to people who they thought were their birth parents um, but because they did one of those um, online kind of DNA screening things. You know, you can send away a swab and a, comp a private company will, will do some testing and will tell you, you know, your genetic ancestry. You might have some Norwegian DNA in there somewhere and people have done this as a family. Sometimes people get them for the whole family as a Christmas present. They send the swabs back and then they come back and find out that they don't share any of their DNA with their parents whatsoever, which is obviously Absolutely. unexpected and, and quite shocking. Um, and of course, uh, I have to say that also happens with where there's been adultery going on. So it, it doesn't have to be reproductive technology. Exactly the same thing happens where it turns out that I'm the person who I thought was my dad. I have no genetic relationship with him at all. So, and of course, that kind of information can be absolutely explosive within the family dynamics. I guess when couples come and approach you and asking about these questions, when they're experiencing infertility or concern or thinking about going down the IVF route, do they? Do, do you experience? Do people often have concerns about, as you say, the surplus embryos? Because a lot of Christians believe that you know life begins at the moment of conception. So these these twenty five or thirty embryos are twenty five or thirty human lives, and therefore the twenty eight that are left behind in the lab, they are somehow still the children of this couple, and they must be treated with the same kind of dignity and respect that we would give kind of a one or two or ten year old child. Absolutely, that that is one of the the main ethical issues which people want to talk about. But that, but there are actually a whole series of sort of ethical issues associated with IVF because, you know, even if you decide to only have uh, what's called natural cycle IVF, which is you just simply select one egg. You know, one egg is produced at every monthly cycle, and you simply take that one egg, fertilize it, and and reimplant it. So you don't have any of the problems of excess embryos and so on. Even so, the very technology that that is so successful in IVF has been built up over 50 years of extensive embryo research. Millions of embryos have died. 
and being destroyed in the process of developing this technology. So, so even if you yourself are not involved in embryo destruction, you are still in some sense, you may feel some sense of collusion with that, you know, and how do you think about that? Certainly, I would, I always would sort of strongly advise people to think seriously before they freeze embryos that, that it, um, and therefore you don't have to create more than two embryos, even if you've got 25 eggs. What you can do is freeze the eggs, which doesn't raise any kind of ethical problems, and just fertilise one or two and have and implant those. Uh, and what's your your view on um, on things like embryo donation? Um, do do you think that's ethically dubious for Christians? It's a very difficult, challenging topic. I certainly think that if you know. If my wife and I had had discovered that we were infertile, I don't know what we, we would have done. We, but we might have gone for IVF with our own sperm and eggs. But I don't think, I think to, to receive, to go for um, another egg, the egg from someone else or sperm from someone else, it seems to break the bond. I mean, to, to give it long... Uh, long words uh, theologians talk about the procreative and the unitive aspects of marriage so marriage combines procreation making babies but it also involves two people becoming one flesh and the extraordinary thing if you think about it in the biology is is that those two things are intimately related it's theologically speaking it's not an accident that the most intimate and profound way of we have of being physically united to another human being is also the means you make a baby. Um, and so what happens in IVF is that the, the procreative and the unitive aspects of marriage are being forced apart to some extent. And certainly people coming from a Roman Catholic theological tradition would say that means it's completely wrong, as they would also say any other, anything else like contraception uh, would also be wrong. But I think within the Protestant and evangelical worlds, there is a, a feeling that provided that the the general conclusion is that provided that we maintain the link between the husband and the wife and that they are two committed in marriage together and that this is their, the way you are allowing the procreative and the unitive still to come together through the technology. And so... I've often used the analogy that that medicine is a bit like art restoration. We're we're using very sophisticated technology, but our goal is to restore the masterpiece to make it function as it, as it was originally intended and designed by the creator. Hmm. Do you have ethical concerns, even if we're retaining, as you say, the kind of procreative and unitive, about the idea of of almost like mechanizing reproduction and and because it, it gives. It gives uh, parents, p- parents to be, a lot of control over, you know, as we talked about, selecting particular embryos, choosing exactly when you fall pregnant. Some people have worries about, you know, talk about playing God and it kind of inserting human agency and control where we weren't supposed to have any. I do have some concerns about that, but it's less to be honest about the theological aspects and more about the psychological aspects because. I think it is an incredibly invasive and psychologically difficult 
experience going through IVF, particularly going through repeated cycles. And, you know, if you think about it, in, in, in our sexual acts, you know, in, our, in the sexual intimacy in marriage is, is one of the most private and intimate parts of our lives. And yet it's like you're, you're making love with your wife in the bedroom and all of a sudden the lights go on and all these people with white coats come into the room and they say, no, I just need to get a sperm sample here and you need to be, you know, to be, you know. Receive this injection. And, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and not surprisingly, some people find this really quite traumatising. And it's yes. particularly so if one member of the, of the duo is particularly keen to go down this route and the other member is not quite so sure, you could see how this very, very invasive uh, process could actually create real tensions in the relationship. I mean, I've read accounts um, of women who have talked about their experience of going through IVF, and, and even when both them and their husbands were kind of on board with the decision, the reality, as you say, is that for women, it is a significantly more difficult psychologically, emotionally, physically process than it is for the man. And so just even the process of going through several years of cycles and the man is this slightly hapless bystander watching his wife putting her body <laughs> and her donor. emotions that's, that's on the line. Mate. Sperm donors. Sperm donors, you know. <laughs> Once, once you've donated the sperm, there's very little the man does except apart from kind of hold the woman's hand. And that itself can actually place um, strain on a, on a marriage relationship. Absolutely. Now, I, I, and I do, I, so I do ask couples to really, you know, before going down this road, really, you know, being honest with one another and open and before the Lord to pray, is this really what God is calling us to do? And, and I do feel, you know, that adoption, uh, adopting an existing child who is out there. Yes, of course, that also has all kinds of complexities and challenges and difficulties, but, uh, taking an existing child and loving them rather than um, using this incredibly invasive and, and dangerous technology, um, not dangerous, but, but invasive, um, in a, and expensive, uh, in an attempt to have my own child. I mean, is, is that really the best option? As you, and as you said at the beginning, we have to think about why is it that, that couples are almost steered towards IVF as a matter of course when they experience certain kinds of infertility? And why is it that we all intuitively seem to feel this is the obvious and logical response? As you say, it's because we've we've imbibed a culture that the most important thing is that our children share our DNA. And I think as you talk, I think adoption is, is also obviously an, an option there for every infertile couple, not without consequence, cost or sacrifice. But also has huge upsides for the child and for society and it's interesting that that a lot of couples don't aren't really given that option or don't think about that option and I think it's worth reflecting on why it is we have such an interest and a almost a focus and obsession you might say with with um with biological connection biological ties between parent and child we should acknowledge, of course, neither of us have actually ever been in a situation of having been told we're infertile so we are um slightly talking speculatively and we don't want to be kind of callous about people who might be wrestling with this but yeah I think there's certainly big questions to ask ourselves about um what what are children for and 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 why why do we want children and, and what particular kinds of children um if you're caught up in that situation a lot more to be said of course but we're going to have to draw the podcast to a close there um John 
Um, we're hoping to come back shortly and record another one looking at the kind of options beyond IVF and the kind of new frontier of reprodu reproductive technologies which are being developed and the boundaries that are being pushed as we speak. Um, so I look forward to speaking to you soon on this topic again. Yep, thanks very much. I look forward to speaking again. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which has plenty more resources to read, listen to, and watch on lots of the things that we've talked about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T.com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter, and you can find some of my journalism at tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com, or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask, a topic you'd like us to explore, or a news development to respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time.